From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 4, Godzilla King of the Monsters. G fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. In this episode, we will be covering the 1956 film Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which is the Americanized version of Gojira, released in 1954 in Japan. Our related topic for this episode is part two of our discussion about the occupation of Japan. We'll start with our short description of the film and move on to our opinion and discussion section. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a force of nature awakened by nuclear testing. After destroying shipping and fishing vessels and appearing on Odo Island twice, he later comes ashore in Tokyo with no apparent motivation. The military fires on him, which makes him aggressive. The subsequent night, he defeats the self-defense force and angrily decimates Tokyo. Steve Martin is an American reporter for a worldwide news service. He starts following the Godzilla-related news once he hears of the ships being destroyed. Dr. Yamane is a paleontologist who is against Godzilla being killed and instead wishes to study him. Dr. Sarazawa is a scarred and reclusive scientist who went to university with Mr. Martin. He's invented a device called the Oxygen Destroyer that could be used to kill Godzilla. Sarazawa is in an arranged engagement to Yamane's daughter Emiko, but she is in love with a sailor named Ogata. The kaiju plotline drives the human plotlines as the story progresses. Godzilla's actions propel the Love Triangle subplot and Steve Martin's Observatory subplot to their conclusion. As in Gojira, the military response is ineffectual. The JSDMF vessels use depth charges, but Godzilla emerges from Tokyo Bay later. They construct an electrified barrier to repel Godzilla, but he breaks through. They respond with artillery, tanks, and fighter planes, all of which are destroyed. The problem is solved when Sarazawa burns his research and deploys the oxygen destroyer underwater, killing Godzilla and himself. The story is more complex than in the original film because the additional moving part of the Steve Martin plot is inserted. This does not seem to complicate the story very much, though, because Martin is simply observing for the most part. As with the Japanese footage in the film, the effects crew, led by Eiji Tsuburaya and armed with a healthy budget, employed innovative and convincing special effects like soupmation puppetry, miniatures, matte paintings, and animations. The American Steve Martin footage was filmed quickly and with a low budget. The film retains much of the dark tone of the original, but the documentary-style aspect of it is increased due to Steve Martin's reporting. The gravity and seriousness of the film is reduced because nearly all of the political and historical references are removed in the editing process. As a result, the film resembles standard 1950s sci-fi fare. This film is experimental because this was the first time a film like this was Americanized in this way. At the same time, the creators were playing it safe by putting the film on a mid-20th century B-movie track, therefore mixing it in with similar American films. This film reinforces the style of the original film, only American and international audiences saw a more politically sanitized Godzilla. 
Nevertheless, it still made Godzilla popular, and it did introduce the kaiju genre to the non-Japanese audience. The original film was changed from a revolutionary kaiju film to a much safer and more accessible sci-fi film meant for a larger American and international audience. Because many Americans, especially veterans, still had fresh memories of World War II, the editors made the film less controversial in order to lessen risk and maximize profits and ticket sales. The film was successful, making $2 million in the United States, nearly $16 million in present-day dollars. It made Godzilla well-known to the American general public and also in Europe, where it was dubbed. Some critics panned it as badly made B-movie schlock, but most audiences enjoyed the film as a good monster-on-the-loose thriller. It was shown on TV and in repertory theaters for decades. As was detailed, this film is quite different from the original, especially in regards to cultural significance. The original film's nationalism, themes, anti-nuclear sentiment, and pacifist message were bowdlerized. The plight of the Japanese people is less prominent. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we have an opinion and discussion section. So, Nate, did you like this movie? That it almost seems like a loaded question, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I have to say, I like the this movie for what it is. It's definitely inferior to Gojira, but I don't hate it like a lot of people want to. As there are people who just want to dismiss this version of the movie as, uh, I don't want to say trash, but maybe as irrelevant, maybe even irreverent, perhaps. I'm not one of those people, but this was, I saw this version of the movie fairly early on in my fandom. It was one of the first Godzilla movies I ever saw. And for, for years, this was the only version of the first film that was commercially available in the States. It really wasn't until about 2004 when they, they did a a short tour of the original movie going to different cities around the country showing it. And then I think about Oh six, it finally got, released on dvd i'm not really sure how to answer the question do i like this movie or not it's like i think that watching this movie i don't really care about watching it frankly because we have the good version now and so this movie it ends up turning into some sort of time capsule some sort of blast from the past movie where the, the, the more time that passes since this was made, I think it probably becomes more irrelevant and more is like, oh, remember there was an alternate version of this made a long time ago and people watch it just to say, oh, okay, this is what the differences was. These are what the differences were between this and that. I don't really particularly like watching it though. I mean, I've even given the choice if somebody's going to put the DVD or Blu-ray of the original next to a Blu-ray of the uh, alternate version, I'm going to pick the original version. And I wouldn't hold that against anybody you know, for doing that. I-, I totally understand, especially since we weren't able to see this for, you know, for so many years, you know, at least legally. But it's like you said, it- it's-, it's definitely a time capsule. It's a-, it's a snapshot, really, of what was going on at that time in terms of America's perceptions of Japan and the Japanese and maybe even Japanese attitudes toward Americans at the time. I mean, there was just, there were so many things that were, you know, contributing to what led to this. Is a time capsule because we get to look back at 
a world that is really no longer like that anymore. You know, it was a different world back then. It was only 11 years since the end of World War II. And I'll tell you, 11 years is really not all that long. Especially not after something like that. No, worst war in human history. I, I think you have to consider when it was made and you have to consider what the environment was at the time, because this movie is, well, a pretty nationalist movie. The original is. And what it does is it, it portrays the Japanese as victims. And so how much of that do you want to have in this movie that you're going to show to the American population 11 years after the war ended? At that time, you know, how much do you want to make the Japanese look like victims? And it's, and it's tough because, as we've said in this, in the original, about the original film, the thing is it allowed the Japanese to sort of rail against America and at the same time, America's not ever mentioned in the movie. And they get to watch the movie and, and think about, oh, yeah, you know, we were victims of the war and all this. Victims of the bomb. Yeah, that too. Specifically is what I was thinking. And so what you end up with is, you know, how much of this stuff is just not going to look all that great to an American audience? Because really what I think is, is that it's almost like they got the censors from the occupation era of Japan and you pretty much applied all of the rules they had to go by to the original film in order to make the American version but I don't think there was any malicious intent, really. The, the thing was, was they, they were bowdlerizing it. And this comes from, a, a, from back in Shakespeare days. Uh, it's a term that means it's to remove material considered improper or offensive from a text, especially with the result that it becomes weaker and less effective. And so you had the political stuff. A lot of it was either cut or it was dulled down. It was softened. Because one-third of this movie, the original movie, is gone. One-third one was cut. In King of the Monsters, yeah. Yep, and so we had to... You know, and then the other stuff was filled in with the Ram and Burr parts. And, and a couple other things, but mostly Ram and Burr. And so you, you expurgated a lot of the national spirit in the movie, that the particularly nationalist parts... And so then you you have to make this into a more normal, regular movie for the American audience so that they don't see stuff that is quite so controversial. And it's almost like this movie ends up being some sort of history lesson. It's, it's definitely a lesson in how to bowdlerize something because this this is very softened and we don't we don't get the the nationalist overtones that were so great in the original film. And so it does do its job. It's just that I don't, you know, because all this time has passed now, I know I've seen the movie enough times that I know what they did and what the purpose was. It's just that I'm probably not going to watch it very much now. I'm going to watch the original and, and experience the, the real thing. I will admit, even though there's a, there's a nostalgic appeal to King of the Monsters for me because, you know, it was one of the first Godzilla movies that I saw. Having seen Gojira now, each time that I watch King of the Monsters again, I do find myself liking it a little bit less. Not just because of the, you know, of the cuts that were made to it, but even just you know, as a film, you know, the Steve Martin, the reporter, not the comedian, but Steve Martin, the reporter, just he's 
not that interesting of a character, and I found myself wanting less of him and more of the characters from the original movie, Yamane, Emiko, Ogata, Sarazawa. They were far more interesting, and even in King of the Monsters, they have the most interesting things going on in the movie. I just felt like their story was always being intruded upon, you know, because that's where the, the real meat of the story is. I, I definitely want to see more of, of what they're doing. And, and most of the time when I watch King of the Monsters, I'm like, oh, but, you know, got another narration or got another paraphrasing of what a Japanese person is saying right now. And, and it's like, okay, we like just pull out of this and, and get back into the real, real world, I, I guess would be the term. I don't know. Um, it's just that I think this movie now for me, it just kind of sits there. It's, it's an interesting way to learn about, to learn about the history that was behind all this. But yeah. I think once you, once you get that, then the movie becomes really old hat because you, it's like, Oh yeah, this was way back when this was way more, you know, more of a controversial thing. And I, I think a lot of veterans who had gone to world war two and almost don't care what theater they went to, they, they, you know, theater of war, when they go to the movie theater, I don't think they wanted to see something like what the original was. I think it probably would have been a bit um, insensitive, and I don't think the nationalism aspects of it would have played very well. But instead, you got to introduce Gojira as as what a just standard movie monster, you know, with uh, the with some nuclear symbolism going on for sure. But there isn't that big slap in the face connection to the nuclear bombings, at least that much. There's no woman on the subway saying, you know, oh, I had to... Yeah, that part's cut out. Yeah, all all that kind of stuff. And then, like, the audio is cut off when the woman is telling her two kids, you know, you'll see your father It's not subtitled or explained. Yeah, Yeah, it's just... uh, They they just end up getting crushed or crushed or blown up. No, you see them and she talks... And then it just cuts away. But that's how the original movie, the original cut of the movie was too. Yeah. Except in that one, you know what she's saying. Yeah. And obviously there's a reason why they they made these changes. It wasn't just because, oh, let's just turn this into a a regular monster movie. I mean, part of that was, but part of it was, uh, this isn't. Yeah. This is referencing the war and and overtones of victimhood. And uh, yeah, really the, the most direct reference to the United States in King of the Monsters aside from having an American in it is the is Yamane saying that Godzilla was awakened by H-bomb tests and yeah there is that nu- the nuclear testing connection in there uh but it that's repeated quite a lot it's like a pretty familiar trope in a lot of sort of sci-fi movies B movies of the time in America too yeah um, you know nuclear test occurs then adversely affects some organism. Organism turns into gigantic monster, monster etc. You know, then has to be figured out how to do, you know, yeah. how to deal with it. And that's done various ways. But like, there's often some sort of, you know, nuclear energy sort of becomes like or radioactivity to it. It just becomes sort of like magic. It just can, yeah can affect things and. You know, organisms and stuff, however you want it. It was the new mysterious thing at the time. Yeah, it's 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 sort of a substitute for magic. You know, then it turns something into something else, way more formidable, mm-hmm. and you and you take the story on from there. Yeah, I actually, 
I don't know if this is original to me, but I do have a, a fairly unique take, I guess, on the, you could say, the, the canonicity of King of the Monsters. Even though the the continuity in the, the Showa-era films is fairly loose. And that is, I look at King of the Monsters as being a, a parallel story. And this actually ties back to what we're saying about this being a time capsule. I look at this as a parallel story. This is the story of Godra being told from an American point of view that and so that would explain why the you, you could explain in universe why there were these changes that were made and how it was presented differently and the you know because it, it, it's focusing on different things that don't have as much to do with the Japanese national spirit it's more being told from the perspective of an outsider who is witnessing and experiencing these events himself as opposed to you know being told from someone who's a native of the country and explaining things, and that also would explain why even the ending is a the attitude at the ending is a bit different too, because the Gojira ends on a very somber kind of dour sort of a note, whereas Steve Martin the reporter has this narration at the end where he says you know talking about Sarazawa that a great man has died. But now the world can wake up and live again because he's eliminated a threat to not only Japan, but potentially to the whole world. The sadness is still there. It's just that there's this extra thing kind of thrown on there that's trying to lift it up a little bit. You know, I think was the idea because it's very much indicative of the attitude that the Japanese and Americans had toward nuclear weapons where the Japanese have a very negative view of nuclear weapons whereas the americans would have a much more positive view of those things yeah because the japanese sentiment is that nobody should have nuclear weapons and nobody should be using them and that definitely was not the position of the united states at the time it was because well we have two countries and the cold war is already well into well into action here and we have both countries doing nuclear tests and uh, at the time it was uh quite a little bit of a scary time to live in i think you know it's different yeah. different threats than there are now but um and that was actually what you're saying there is uh, also illustrated in one of the more subtle changes that were that were made to the film which is there's a there's a a dubbed line during the conversation between Sarazawa and Miko and Ogata where i believe it was Sarazawa uh, in the original version said that nobody should have the oxygen destroyer because yeah, the, the oxygen destroyer kind of becomes this substitute uh, symbol almost of uh, for the nuke. uh, of nuclear weapons. Yeah. You know, it's it's the new WMD. And whereas in the in King of the Monsters, his line is that he's afraid that it will end up in the wrong hands. Now that seems to not be that big of a deal, but it again illustrates the differences in attitude between the two countries where the Americans, especially in the fifties were thinking, okay, these can be good things, but they should only be used by certain people. Whereas the Japanese sentiment is nobody should have them. Right. It's, it's almost like the, the differentiation between, you know, who should have the ring of power you know, versus nobody should have the ring of power. It should be destroyed. You know, like, yeah, I, I mean, the, whether it was intended or not, I mean, obviously that the ring is is a good, uh, also a good substitute for WMDs, just because of the amount of power that the the wielder would have. But it's it's the same idea, you know. Who it, it's a great power, and is any should anybody really have it at all? 
One thing I do like about this film, though, especially is Raymond Burr. I really like him. I'm, I've been familiar with him as an actor. I've seen quite a bit of the stuff that he did. Uh, he, he was quite good. I like the Perry Mason stuff. I like the new Perry Mason stuff in the 90s. He, he was in some good movies in the 50s, too. Uh, Rear Window? Time. Yeah, he was in Rear Window. Uh, but he's a, he's a good actor. He's memorable. But I especially love the later stuff that he did, actually, with, with Perry Mason. He just fit into that role perfectly. And I remember when he died, too, and I, I saw the NBC tribute uh, that was done uh, after his death. It was, uh, I mean, it was, he's a pretty amazing guy. And I think he definitely was a positive he was a very positive force for Godzilla as an American, you know, like he, he liked the movies and I think he treated Godzilla in a, in a nice, serious way. I think he understood what, what the point was. He was never, uh, he was never ashamed of, of the work that he did uh, in this movie. And I, I agree with you. I think he does the absolute best he can with what he's given. Yeah. And, I do think I think he I honestly do think he gives an effective performance. There are points where the observations that he's making and the narration that he makes are actually quite chilling at points when he's describing what he sees going on. And he's always been a, a very much a friend of the franchise, you know, even though some people might find his contributions to be kind of dubious. But. Yeah, you know, he was always very proud of the work that he did. And he you're right. He understood what Godzilla was and what he meant. One aspect that I will credit this movie for is making Godzilla a phenomenon in America, because if you had stayed on the art film track for this, not very many people would have seen it at all, I think. And it, it wouldn't have gotten the kind of exposure to Americans that it did. There are, I think, a few strengths to the the Americanized version of this film, and one of them is a line that was added in the dub version that has become iconic and has struck most of the people who've seen the movie, including myself, when I first saw it. And that is a line that is spoken by Ogata when he is trying to convince Sarazawa to use the oxygen destroyer. And he says, Then you have a choice no other man has faced. You have your fear, which may become reality, and you have Godzilla, which is reality. If I was going to pick something from this movie to be its thematic statement, it would be that. A lot of the other themes are lessened in this movie, but it seemed as though the editors of this film were very much interested in the dilemma that Sarazawa finds himself in. In where he has to choose between what seems like two terrible choices and must pick the lesser of two evils, or at least what he thinks is the lesser of two evils. You know, does he take care of the immediate threat but potentially introduce one that is even greater? I mean, that's a very difficult decision for, for anybody to make. What's interesting, though, is I would say compared to a lot of the other films when they got dubbed the the tone of Godra is retained better than you know than you you would see with some of the later films when they were dubbed at yeah, the very it's not, least it's not made into some humorous mess yeah or or the 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 additions feel very out of place and very intrusive and just and and stuff like that but the other thing 
that I thought was a very interesting change that I didn't notice until I rewatched it for the podcast is that when I watch Gojira, I get I very much get a feeling of immersion. I am being planted into the middle of everything that's going on, particularly when you have like the Odo Island scenes, when you're seeing, you know, the exorcism ceremony and all of this kind of weird cultural stuff that's going on. Uh, you know, it's it it feels, you know, like very, kind of all encompassing. Whereas with king of the monsters even though i'm being presented the same material the way it's put together i feel like the outsider looking in you know which i would say you know is to the film's credit i think that was what they were going for you know because martin is the outsider looking in he's the proxy for the audience he's learning about these things as he goes and yeah. translating it for the audience you know and it was done as a cost-cutting measure, so they didn't have to do as much dubbing. But it, in a weird way, it actually it, it's an effective story device because it gives you a different sort of sensation, you know, when you're watching this. And you know, I, I actually appreciated you know for that. I thought it was it was an interesting take on things. Yeah, but between like between being an outsider versus being the insider on the original film, like which one? Would you rather be a perspective from? Personally, uh, I will give the the obvious answer. I do prefer Gojira, but it's because Gojira is the original. And that was how it was originally meant to be seen. Now, if you had tried to do the story originally as an outsider looking in, that would have been a, you know, that would be a whole other thing to debate, I would say. Yeah, I'd rather be the insider too. I want to. I want to. I love the Japanese aspects of the movie. I mean, it's from Japan. It's made by Japanese people. I, I want to see the the genuine thing. But uh, and and that's kind of what I'm getting at with this film is because with with King of the Monsters is that you. It seems like it's losing relevance the more that passes on because there are less people in the audience who actually lived through the war and went through that. And so now we get to see the real thing in 2006 and it's a big deal. It sold a lot of copies and I think it, it greatly increased the interest in the franchise, but I'm not sure exactly how this thing, how this movie fits into the whole franchise. The later time becomes, it seems it becomes a little bit less necessary every year. I think this movie is hard to talk about. I think it's such a different film and I think that it, you have to really go back into that history and, and say, okay, well, what was going on in America at the time? You know, like I remember nine 11 when it happened, very huge, very huge event. It's been quite a while since it happened, but it still feels like not all that long ago to me. Still very fresh. It's definitely still there for sure. And I feel like that's, what happened with the war with a lot of people. It was only 11 years later and really 11 years is not that much time. Not for something like when, that. When you're actually, yeah, when you go through it and when you actually live through that post-war period, 1956 is not all that long. It's a matter of, I think propriety almost, but, but this movie is hard to talk about because it's just uh, such a unique 
you know, is very like nailed in its time period. You know, a lot of these Godzilla movies are nailed in their own time period, but this one's just like welded to it. Just, yeah, just very much so. Just because it's that menta- the mentality of, of the Japanese populace and the American populace have changed so much since then. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't that gulf of, of misunderstanding as quite so much. Yeah, something like this just isn't necessary anymore. No, thankfully we're not doing this to Japanese movies anymore. I mean, well, and, and even what this did is still a bit of a rarity. I mean, I can't think of too many other movies that were so radically altered. It was pretty radically changed. I, I this this movie King of the Monsters, it really is a uh, a nice time capsule, but it's uh I think just going at it from a cursory standpoint and just saying, "Oh, well, you know, it's not very good." or or whatever. Well, it was meant to be something extremely specific to a very specific audience tailored to them at a very specific time. Uh huh. Yeah. This one's a tough one to talk about because you want to try to get it right. I think. And yeah. You, and you want to give it it's, it's due. And at the same time you, you come to the reality of, well, you know, between this and the original, I'm going to pick the original every time, but it's still there. It's like the little, it's like the little brother that's just the really little brother just kind of hanging out in the bigger brother's shadow. Only it's, it's like only I'm it's, here. Only it's like a statue, yeah, of the little brother that that's you know preserved in 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 time in, in you know clay or whatever you know it's made out of stone, stone, <laughs> yeah, and it's never going to change. And the the way people view it, it's I don't know if it's going to change from where it is now. Uh, it's definitely an interesting piece. That concludes our opinion and discussion section. Let's move on to our related topic. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Now it's time to move on to our related topic, which is part two of our discussion about the United States occupation of Japan. Before we get into this topic, we want to absolutely stress that we're not trying to push a partisan or ideologically purist viewpoint here, because this is a rather tough topic. If we avoided this topic, we would have left a huge hole in our discussion about the occupation and in our discussion about the Japanese national spirit. The first mutual security treaty between the U.S. and Japan was signed in 1951, and it connected Japan to the U.S. in a big way. In 1952, the occupation of Japan formally ended, and the security treaty came into effect. On that same day, the Treaty of San Francisco was signed, and it brought Japan back into the international community. It came into force in 1952. The treaty formally ended Japan's position as an imperial power, and it accepted the judgments of the International Military Tribunal on the Far East, allocated compensation for Allied POWs, left the Ogasawara Islands, the Ryukyu Islands, including Okinawa and the Amami Islands, Miyako and the Yayama Islands, under potential U.S. trusteeship, left the fate of the Kuril and Senkaku Islands ambiguous, left all Japanese assets and infrastructure in Manchuria to China, China renounced its right to demand reparations from Japan, and arranged for Japanese compensation to Burma, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Vietnam. Japan paid over 1 billion U.S. dollars in reparations to countries it occupied during the war. 
the last payment was made to the Philippines July 22nd, 1976, nearly 30 years after the war. The treaty was signed by 48 countries, but there were three notable ones who refused to sign, one of which was, as you might expect, the Soviet Union. They made vigorous objections to the treaty while it was being ratified, and and, uh, several of their major objections to it was they thought that the treaty did not have any guarantees that Japan would not become a military power again. They were upset that China had not been invited uh, to the discussion of uh, of the treaty, and they saw China as one of Japan's key victims from, uh, from the war. And they were also upset that the United States essentially made Japan a military base for themselves and brought Japan into a coalition against the USSR. Diplomatic relations between Japan and the USSR would not be reestablished until 1956. That was the same year that Japan joined the United Nations. Part of the Treaty of San Francisco involved Japan accepting the judgments of the International War Crimes Tribunal that took place in Tokyo. And this issue has been a tough one. The tribunal is surrounded by a number of rather contentious problems. One thing we immediately want to throw out is equating the two theaters of war in World War II to each other. The Pacific War and the European War were two different conflicts fought for different reasons. Equating war crimes in East Asia to war crimes in Europe is not an accurate thing to do. It is entirely valid to compare the proceedings of the Nuremberg trials to the proceedings of the Tokyo trials because the same standards were applied to the two very different events that took place. One universal thing, however, is that letting POWs die in captivity is wrong. Massacring civilians is wrong. While 4% of American and British POWs held in captivity by the Germans died, 27% of American and British POWs held in captivity by the Japanese died. That's almost seven times the percentage between the two theaters of war. These people were, of course, not on the battlefield, and they were unarmed at the time. Killing people who are at your mercy is not an act of conventional war. Acts of brutality against civilians is also not proper, whether it's during a war or not. We will not make excuses for war atrocities in this podcast. The Japanese military was engaged in a holy war, and they often treated their enemies as not even human. They conducted a great many massacres, engaged in forced labor, torture, and the use of chemical weapons. Though a vociferous minority in Japan tends to minimize these crimes, I will quote Crown Prince Naruhito, who said in 2015 that it is important to look back on the past humbly and correctly in reference to the World War II era war crimes, and that he was concerned about the ongoing, quote, need to correctly pass down tragic experiences and the history behind Japan to the generations who have no direct knowledge of the war at the time memories of the war are about to fade. Over 50 military tribunals all over the world were conducted, and 5,700 individuals were indicted for war crimes. 75% of the defendants in these tribunals involved charges of crimes against prisoners. The Soviets may have executed as many as 3,000 war criminals, while the other allies executed 920. Our discussion involves only one of these tribunals, and that was the high-profile Tokyo Tribunal Tribunal 
which involved crimes against peace, which is the instigation of war against treaty, conventional war crimes, which are the violation of the rules of war, and crimes against humanity, a provision specifically made regarding the Holocaust. Crimes against humanity are acts of extermination based on political or racial backgrounds. However, there was also no group like the Nazis in Japan. It has generally been accepted that an organized act of extermination like the Holocaust was not perpetrated in the Pacific theater of conflict. There was no Japanese equivalent of the SS, the Nazi Party, the Gestapo, etc. They were clear people to focus on in the Nuremberg trials. The prosecutor himself in the Tokyo Tribunal, Joseph B. Keenan, stated that we have no interest in any particular individual or his punishment. They are representative of a certain sense of a class or group, which that's, that's very rather different from the Nuremberg trials, which went after very specific people. This is really odd. General MacArthur himself said that while the definition of war criminals in Germany was very simple, the definition was unclear in Japan. He also said that the tribunal should have only focused on the attack on Pearl Harbor and not on all of these other things. Oh, really? I didn't come across that when I was looking at my research. I know Pearl Harbor was a huge part of the, of the tribunals, but it wasn't the only part. A big central issue to this discussion is, should a country be able to use war as a tool of the state? Or put another way, is aggressive war in and of itself a crime? Indeed, even some military officials in the United States stated that this should not be considered a crime, as the United States should have the right to do the same if they feel that their national security is threatened. General Tojo said that Japan engaged in a war of self-defense and that it was done out of legitimate national security concerns. His concern was that Japan was being economically crippled by anti-Japanese boycotts in China, Soviet-led communist subversive activities in China and other places in East Asia, and coercive and protectionist trade policies of the West. Regarding these trade policies, Tojo was likely referring to the July 1941 decision by the United States, Great Britain, and the Dutch East Indies to freeze Japanese assets in their countries and impose an embargo on exports to Japan, including oil, but excluding cotton and food. This was done after Japanese troops entered French Indochina in their continued march to get rid of the West Asian colonies. Oil was absolutely necessary to the Empire of Japan's continued expansion. By November of 1941, both the United States and Japan had enough information to know that the impasse was unlikely to be solved diplomatically. It should be noted that in his final moments, General Tojo apologized for the atrocities committed by the Japanese and urged the American military to show compassion to the Japanese who had suffered so much in the war. Brigadier General Elliot Thorpe, who was a major figure in the reconstruction of Japan, stated that he saw the Tokyo Tribunal as revenge, and it established precedent that anyone who wages war and loses would face war crimes charges. After all, one of the seven death row inmates who was hanged was the wartime Prime Minister of Japan, and General Tojo was also a former Prime Minister during the war too. George Kennan, as not related to the prosecutor Keenan, was a major diplomatic figure in the Department of State and a former ambassador to the Soviet Union and other countries, and he said that the Tokyo Tribunal was psychologically unsound and that they were political trials and not law trials. So, like, if the United States 
declared war out of its national interest and we lost and we had a court proceeding for war crimes charges it would be like charging our president with war crimes for using war as a tool of the state mm-hmm. that is the that's the central part of this argument like i don't know what we would think of that i think considering that our president would not have committed war crimes himself if you try to turn the tables on it it can it sounds rather yeah it does it... i'm going to have to say no declaring war shouldn't be considered a crime it is a right of the state the declaring you declare war when you believe that the best interests of your country are at stake and if that means you have to go to war in order to defend those interests i mean it's almost like putting someone in jail for self-defense now not every declaration of war is self-defense self-defensive is that a word self-defensive in nature but you know why rob somebody of that and not to mention the logical consistency you have to then make is that every country who's declared war on somebody else is guilty of a crime yes and that the person who signed those orders to declare war is culpable and a war criminal and should be hanged after a trial and that's a very huge precedent to set i mean why have a secretary of state and a president and a military i mean that that's the essence of the state and so like why if you can't declare war and that's automatically illegal somehow or a war crime in and of itself then how does any state how can any state declare war at all not to not to mention, isn't a declaration of war in some weird way kind of considered a courtesy? I mean, you're at least letting somebody know you're going to go to war with them. It, it's hard to, especially if I was, especially if I imagine if I was a general in the military and I saw this kind of trial take place, I thought, well, what, what if our president had done this and we lost? Our, our president would probably be tried for war crimes and then hanged. And I, I don't think that that would have been a productive thing. And, and I think that I think that hanging the prime minister of Japan was quite a big deal. And I don't know if we should have gone there. And it definitely seems more like a political thing to me. The other part that kind of dovetails with this is the fact that the charge was made that this was an, an involved ex post facto crimes or just after the fact. How... Is it legally responsible to establish a new international order outlawing crimes against peace and then charge these people with a crime when this new international order didn't exist? These kinds of charges were unknown when all of this stuff in the war was started. Justice Rowling said, without a law, there can be no crime. Without a law, there can be no punishment. The defense argued that these were ex post facto crimes that aggressive war was not illegal, and that the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which was signed in Paris in 1928, did not make aggressive war an actual crime. This kind of international order didn't exist at the time that war was actually declared. Yeah, it's... When you put it that way, Brian, it's... It really makes the... The case brought against the war criminals just that much flimsier. I mean, I don't think it excuses what they did, but there really was no precedence. 
every once in a while we hear in political discussions that that term legislating from the bench. Oh, God. And, and, but like, it, that's almost what was being done in this case. Like, it's like, okay, we're going to make up this new law called Crimes Against Peace. And it involves anything that, where you declare a war against any treaty that you signed. And it's like, aren't you legislating from the bench at that point? Yeah, at this point, you may as well be. Moving to another issue, the prosecution in the tribunal had a very important purpose of protecting and insulating the emperor from the proceedings. So the prosecution was prosecuting mostly political and high military figures for war crimes, while at the same time they were acting as the defense team for the emperor. And he signed all of these things. He signed the Declaration of War. He signed the order to instigate Pearl Harbor. He signed the order for so many of the other things that were very bad that occurred during the war. But he was completely let off. He wasn't brought to testify. And the other defendants, it was, it was a painstaking process on both sides between the defendants and the prosecution to not implicate the emperor. Because on one side, you have the defendants who are very loyal to the emperor and they don't want to see him get charged with anything they want to see him stay in power and and to be around still and not get pulled into this at the same time you have the prosecution wanting to keep the emperor in power as well so they have two they have one goal and two very different sides to this the position of the united states was that the emperor should be protected he should not be tried as a war criminal and definitely not executed and it is because that would have greatly angered the Japanese public and created a long-standing grievance against the United States, which is definitely not wanted. He was also the head of the Shinto religion, and so executing would have been tantamount to like killing a religious figure, like the I don't know, like the like the Dalai Lama or even Jesus. Although there's no exact comparison to this kind of event in other cultures or countries, it would have been an extremely serious thing. It's a very strange, it's a very strange thing, and I understand. MacArthur and the United States taking that position, it certainly helped the occupation in the long run and our relation with Japan in the long run. But at the same time, it also does seem inconsistent with everything else that was going on with the tribunal where they were making the argument that the very declaration of war is a war crime and the emperor is the one who he is the head of state. Everything goes through him. The buck stops there. Yeah. The buck stops there. And there's, there's been a lot of longstanding discussions about how culpable he really was in this. There's a lot of varying opinions about that. How much of it was Hirohito, how much of it was the military and, and which side of the military that really decided yeah. What direction to go. Yeah. I, I and, think... was, and was the emperor really militant about this or was he just going with the general flow of things at the time? Or, you know, because it turned out that he was quite a lot more moderate. Yeah. And which, like I said, makes the makes the whole thing that much more difficult. And, it, and knowing that, I mean, there are things that I've learned about the tribunals that don't make me happy. But I also agree with the decision to exonerate the emperor and the royal family because I think it did a lot of good in the long run. But in the short term at that time, I might have been upset. Yeah, it made the, the war crime tribunal a, a huge stumbling block regarding the emperor. He was the elephant that wasn't in the room. Yeah, well, it, it actually, 
kind of becomes a stumbling block to the whole discussion of the occupation itself, you know? Yeah, and obviously there were other problems with the occupation. You know, not everything was a rosy picture, and the Japanese view it as, you know, uh, some of the Japanese view it as like a cultural, you know, real defeat in, in that way, but not obviously not all of them. And the defendants in the Tokyo Tribunal, they made sure that they didn't incriminate the emperor, specifically for the, to quote them, for the future of the Japanese race, unquote. There was absolutely nothing like this dynamic going on in post-war Germany during the Nuremberg trials. And Hitler so, was dead yeah. at that point. And in this way, some Japanese then and today believed that the Tokyo defendants were heroic in their defense of the emperor by taking the blame themselves. You know, they, they, they took the heat and, you know, they got executed. And meanwhile, the, the emperor and the royal family got to continue. And the point is, though, that the emperor signed all of this stuff. He knew about it. So leaving him out of this is strange, albeit for a justifiable reason. So excusing everything he did and then ordering the prime minister to death by hanging is a difficult thing to do. What they ended up doing to the emperor, though, is they ended up transforming him, right? He was to reign rather than rule. As we said in our previous episode, in episode three, the Pacific War was looked at by the Japanese imperialists as a war to liberate the Asian people's from Western imperialism and to create a pan-Asian empire of its own, albeit in the same style that Western countries created their empires. Japan was emulating Western-style imperialism, and the only countries that Japan invaded were Asian countries. Now, Justice Powell from India, he said that it was hypocritical to charge Japan with crimes against peace for engaging in this activity. Why is that? Well, because the Western powers were guilty of doing the same thing to other countries. And so this was like the pot calling the kettle black. His opinion wasn't made available to the Japanese public until after the occupation ended. But many Japanese people related to this kind of opinion. Powell, he was an Indian nationalist, and he really spoke to the neo-nationalism of the Japanese in this respect. Obviously, Western-style imperialism, that is pretty much exactly what Japan was doing. And, but, but because time passed later, it seems hypocritical from that standpoint to charge Japan with doing the same thing. I have trouble refuting that kind of an argument. Yeah, that's, and that's one of the things about the tribunal. When you look at everything that was being brought against Japan, you almost, well, not almost, you have to start looking at other instances when, uh, when similar things were happening. It if Japan has to be guilty of these crimes in this war, then what does that say about countless other nations, not only during that war, but before and since? Yeah, most of it before the most of it before World War II broke out. And so again, it's almost like you're creating a different standard. And and like, you know, imperialism was okay back then when we were doing it, but it's not when the Japanese are doing it in their neighborhood. The thing of it is, it's very easy to make the argument that the War Crimes Tribunal was victor's justice. In other words, it is the winning nation in a war coming in and deciding the fates of the nation who has ju- that they have just defeated in this war. Whether, that, whether the charges and such that are bringing against them are fair or not. Because the thing of it is, 
the United States funded the tribunal and they held the role of chief prosecutor. And really, the argument can be made that that makes it impossible for them to be impartial. There was only one prosecution team, and it was led by an American, which is totally different than what the Nuremberg trials were doing over in Europe. Nuremberg had four prosecutors, and the Tokyo Tribunal had one. Also, only three of the 11 justices on the Tokyo Tribunal were from Asian countries. The defense team also had only three translators, while the prosecution had 102 of them. And yeah, that's a, a huge advantage there. Yeah. And the prosecution had much greater resources. And so that, that's a difficult one, too. But then also the rules of evidence were changed so that hearsay, diary excerpts, unsworn statements, copies of documents that the originals were missing and affidavits where the authors weren't available for cross-examination were all admissible as evidence. Pretty much Anything could be admitted as evidence at this tribunal. The defense team was also not allowed to make the argument that they were defending Pan-Asianism or to mention how the victors had violated international law or broken treaties themselves. Why weren't they allowed to use Pan-Asianism as their defense? The main criticism of Japanese Pan-Asianism is that it is Japanese propaganda, which was used as reason to invade other Asian countries. In other words, it was about freeing Asian countries from Western imperialism by subjugating them under Japanese imperialism. One of the three parts of the 2007 Japanese nationalist film The Truth of Nanking is called The Seven Death Row Inmates, and it covers the lives of the Tokyo Tribunal defendants during the last moments of their lives. The film depicts them as at peace with their fate and that they're satisfied that they did the right thing for their country. They're shown as heroes and perhaps even as martyrs. There is an attitude that if they can save the emperor, then their death in the grand scheme of things is okay, and what's necessary is necessary. While just concentrating on just that part of the movie about the tribunal defendants, it's quite moving, the, the way that they are depicted. This film was hard to watch for me, but it, it definitely gave me a taste of what the alternate viewpoint is regarding the Tokyo trials. I, I think that because the emperor was saved and that we did that, I, I think that the tribunal then became the grievance for, for Japanese nationalism, especially Justice Powell's moving um, dissent with many of the rest of the judges and his, how his nationalism related to Japanese nationalism. 45 of the 55 counts in the tribunal were dismissed as superfluous, redundant, or simply obscure. Out of the 11 justices on the tribunal, Justice Powell acquitted all of the defendants, saying that the trials were victors' justice. Justice Rowling of the Netherlands also dissented and found five of the defendants not guilty. Justices Webb of Australia and Bernard of France both said that the tribunal was deeply flawed, because of the complete omission of the role of the emperor. The seven condemned defendants were hanged after the tribunal finally ended after two and a half years. Which that's a very big chunk of the occupation era that this trial was taking place. One other defendant was found mentally unfit to stand trial, and, the char and his charges were dropped. Two died of natural causes during the trial. Sixteen defendants were sentenced to life imprisonment. Three died in prison, while the other 13 
were paroled between 1954 and 1956. Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment and died in prison in 1949. Foreign Minister Mamoru Shigemitsu was sentenced to seven years. Regarding the executions, they were handled in a surprising way. They were handled at Sugamo Prison, and they were performed December 23, 1948. But interestingly, MacArthur defied President Truman and did not allow photography at these executions in order to not embarrass or antagonize the Japanese people. So there are no record no there's there's no photographic print, photographic no. records of these executions instead he brought in four members of the allied council to uh, to be official witnesses of the executions and i think in all of these things that went down in the tribunals and what was going on in the occupation i think this was an incredibly gracious thing for him to do really goes along with his thinking to make sure that the emperor was untouched during the occupation and that he would still he would still be around and that was also done partially to make sure that the japanese people did not have so much of a long standing grievance against the united states towards the end of the occupation emperor hirohito himself went to general macarthur's office and said that he wished to issue a formal apology for the events during World War II and also the attack on Pearl Harbor. MacArthur refused to acknowledge or admit the emperor, and the apology went undelivered. A man named Patrick Lennox Tierney, a Japanologist and art history academic, witnessed this occurring and said it was the rudest, crudest thing someone could do, considering how important apologies are in Japan's culture. This could have been a huge missed opportunity to put things between the U.S. and Japan more at ease, but obviously there was a reason why he did this, and it was because he wanted to keep the emperor protected and his legitimacy unchallenged, and that keeping the system intact would keep Japan stable, which, since he was a consummate cold warrior, he believed this would help keep Japan from sliding into chaos. This would fit with the fact that that the U.S. had done so much to spare him from being indicted as a war criminal and putting most of the blame on Tojo and other figures. An alternate interpretation is that the emperor was being used by the U.S. to legitimize all of the changes to Japan by approving them, and that a formal apology from him would be an admission of guilt. And if, you know, if that occurred, then that would be going against all the efforts that the U.S. was trying to, to avoid. Because, you know, we, we covered for him during the tribunal. We made sure that he wasn't removed. You know, having him apologize and then ex- us accept that apology, that would have completely reversed it because he, it, he would have been admitting guilt. And so that's a, a really interesting thing to occur. If I had watched it, I don't know what I would have thought. But I, I don't know if it's... I, I think it's less rude and crude and perhaps just more careful and in line with everything else MacArthur wanted to do. And and I think maybe he thought that the emperor would have done damage to himself long-term in, in the history books, maybe too, because we had worked so hard to, to change him and, and make him a leader of this imperial democracy. Now, having done all of that, 
why have it then be reversed? The movie expresses a lot of criticism of the way things worked under the occupation in the, fir- in the first Gojira film. And once the censorship was taken away, they could start expressing their opinions again. Yeah, the yeah, there was an art, an essay published in Asahi Shimbun, which is a Japanese newspaper, on April twenty eighth, nineteen fifty two, which I believe was the day the Americans left. It was called a new start for Japan, and they said that the occupation was quote almost akin to colonialism end quote, resulting in people becoming quote irresponsible, obsequious, and listless unable to perceive issues in a forthright manner, which led to distorted perspectives. And the essay concluded, quote, It is hoped the Japanese people will use this occasion to turn over a new leaf. However, the the day the Americans left, it was just business as usual for the Japanese people. It wasn't a big deal to them. I, I read a newspaper article with somebody who had interviewed people who, you know, from the time, there was a proprietor of a Ginza club who ordered a bunch of extra bottles of champagne, expecting that there would be lots of people coming in to celebrate the Americans leaving, and hardly anybody showed up. So while the Ginza clubs were disappointingly quiet, they did ring temple bells and some sirens were sounded for the occasion, and the Japanese national anthem, Kimi Gayo, started being played on NHK radio again. There is some desire for change in Japan, and it is advocating that the times have changed, and that the real thing that Japan needs is to somehow wriggle itself free of this post-war constitution, or some people in, in Japan are referring to their current constitution as the constitution under the occupation which is even more explicitly, you know, opinionated in that expre- in that way of expressing yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it's that sounds like they're very much saying this was not in their opinion that this is not something that we yeah, wanted it was something imposed upon us. Yeah, it implies that that it was imposed even though we did mostly write it. But yeah, there there's some uh criticisms of the occupation that are still around now and one of them was obviously that it diminished Japan's military power, which is an obvious thing, and it was what that was decided in the Potsdam Agreement about how the demilitarization would be. Yeah, which, which was, uh, I believe, was written several years before the end of the war. Yeah, and so, so at what point are you able and allowed to get out of the post-war demilitarization. You know, I don't think it was implied that it was supposed to last forever. And so... um, No, I mean, it certainly made sense at the time, you know, given the situation, but it's, it's, you know, it's we're talking, you know, it's been over 60 years. In fact, I think we're coming up to the 65th anniversary of the end of the occupation. So, I mean, it makes sense that it would have to change. Yeah, and that's what the argument being made is, is that times have changed and the situation on the ground militarily and and threat status-wise in East Asia is different now than it was at the end of World War II. And so the desire is that because now is one of the scariest times in Japanese history, that they would want a military that would be a genuine military in every way. 
instead of just the self-defense force. And so the desire to defend themselves from outside threats is uh, a big pressure. Another criticism of the occupation was that it diminished Japan's status in the international community by giving this sort of neutered military uh, to the Japanese to have instead of a normal military. And so at what point, again, do you, you get out of that? There's also the complaint that changing the emperor from a sovereign into a symbol, that there is now an opinion in Japan among some that says that the emperor should be given more power and should be recognized, especially ceremonially, as a sovereign more than just a symbolic head of an imperial democracy. I don't know if anybody else has done the thing where they stay up on Wikipedia until five o'clock in the morning, but uh, I, I, I do that sometimes. And so do I. Yeah, <laughs> Unit Seven Thirty One was a uh, it was a covert chemical and biological weapons research unit in Northeast China. It functioned for ten years, all the way up to the end of the war. The projects included things like vivisection, germ warfare frostbite testing, syphilis testing, rape and forced pregnancy, weapons testing, starvation testing, centrifuge tests, pressure chambers, x-ray overexposures, anthrax, bubonic plague, typhoid, dysentery, so many horrific things. And those are just the basic gist descriptions of what they did. Even on Wikipedia, the details, the few details they offer are beyond horrific and disturbing. There is obviously the equivalent to things like Dr. Mangala in, in in Europe and and yes there is the the rather out there explanation for these things such as, you know, when you're engaged in total war, nothing's off the table. And uh, make of that what you will. I'll let you decide. Along with the emperor the members of Unit 731 were granted immunity from the War Crimes Tribunal in exchange for their research, which the U.S. wanted to keep out of the Soviet Union's hands. Also, the activities of Unit 731 were not known to the tribunal until after the tribunal handed down their verdict, which made quite a few people associated with the tribunal upset. There were also no charges regarding the issue of comfort women either, which is an interesting omission. In fact, the only reference made to Unit 731 at all during the tribunal was a reference to their use of, it was a reference to their quote-unquote poisonous serum experiment on Chinese citizens, which was made by David Sutton, an assistant to the Chinese prosecutor, but it was dismissed as unsubstantiated due to a lack of evidence. It was probably an accidental, since Sutton was unaware of Unit 731, as we just discussed. We chose these topics for this episode because it's difficult to talk about the occupation without mentioning some of the negatives of the occupation. It's it's kind of a duty to not just say that the occupation was all, you know, rainbows and sunshine And because this issue is still a big issue in the discussion of the Japanese national spirit, and that's part of the, that's one of the biggest things we want to try to do in this podcast. And that is, that is try to, try to flesh these things out 
and try to give some meaning to this. And this is these issues, such as these rather contentious issues back then, at least about U.S. foreign policy with Japan. We wanted to mention that during the American translation of the original Gojira film from 1954. Yeah, because these, I think these issues in some ways played into the editor's attitudes toward how they handled the film. You know, the for some people at that time, the war was still a little bit fresh. And maybe yeah. in explaining these issues and how tough they were, like for veterans that came back after the war, you know, this was only nine years after the war ended. It, it, it gives more of a reason to why to expurgate the parts about politics in the American translation of this film, because it, you, do you really want to bring up that these kinds of issues? Do you really want to like, to what extent do you want to make the Japanese people, the victims in the American translation, because, you know, like, you don't want to offend. The purpose is to make money and make a good sci-fi film out of it. In, in a, an interesting way, we've made some of the case for, for why those things were edited out. And that maybe it wasn't until 2006 that everybody finally got to see the, the full version of this movie. Yeah, we're not we're not in any way saying that these were the best choices for them to make, but I think they're understandable ones. Also, the war crimes tribunal is a it's an issue in, in Japanese nationalism today in in the discussion. It's a big one, and I think if we didn't if we didn't cover this topic, I think we would be remiss. It's important that these things are brought up and discussed because I think there there would be just a big there'd be a big gap in our discussions on this podcast. If we did not cover this, we feel it's a, a mission to, to try to hit the hard topics and to try to understand the alternate viewpoints on this kind of thing. Those were some very heartfelt words, Brian. And to you listeners out there, if you think there's anything related to what we talked about in this episode, that is important that we left out, please let us know by sending us feedback. Our next episode will be the 1955 film Godzilla Raids Again. Yep, the first sequel in our nice little franchise. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchant, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!